The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. It gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil crushed. Why do men then now not wreck his rod? Generations have trod, have trod, have trod, and all is seared with trade, bleared, smeared with toil, and wears man's smudge and shares man's smell. The soil is bare now, nor can foot feel being shod. And for all this, nature is never spent. There lives the dearest freshness deep down things, and though the last lights off the the black west went, O oh, morning at the brown brink eastward springs, because the Holy Ghost over the bent world broods with warm breast and with ah, bright wings. These are the words of Gerard Manley Hopkins' poem entitled God's Grandeur. Here he depicts all the splendor and majesty of God as an electric force. He says, the world is charged with the grandeur of God. The mighty oak tree, the glistening crystal streams, the wind-blown grasslands, the brilliant fields of wildflowers, the newborn baby's cry, the wrinkles of an elderly father, these things are charged with the glory of the divine life. It will flame out, Hopkins says, like shining from shook foil. In shook foil, we see glimpses of bright light. And in the world, we see bright, almost blinding glimpses of God's majesty. This majesty gathers to a greatness, Hopkins explains, like the ooze of oil crushed. An olive is crushed slowly with a kind of patient pressure. And out of that patient pushing and tightening, the richness of an olive gathers into an oil. So also when we look at nature with a patient fixation, we learn to see the, uh, the electricity of God in the very fabric of things. He asked a rhetorical question, why do men then not wreck or reckon or give heed to his rod? Rod being symbolic for the authority that God has. In other words, how is it possible, he's wondering, that humanity can interact with nature all the time and not see the majesty of God? He gives two answers in the next line. First, he says, and all is seared with trade. One sad consequence of the industrial revolution was that nature received an economic value. Beautiful streams are dammed up, dammed up to produce energy. Trees are cut down to build houses. Grasslands are replaced with parking lots. Trade and industry have given us toasters that cost $5, which means that even the poorest among us have toasters. However, the dark underbelly of industry and trade is that many people are now isolated from nature. We get chicken thighs from the store, but some of you have never been within pecking distance of a real chicken. He gives a second reason why men do not recognize or heed the authority of God. He says that humanity is bleared, smeared with toil. Again, the economic need of the day means that most of our working hours are quite long. And then we go home and we have work of a different kind that we fill our life with. Sports practices, mouths to feed, homework that needs to be done, etc. Our lives are filled with toil, a type of labor that leaves no time for contemplation. Hopkins puts this in a funny way. He says that humanity is bleared, smeared with toil. In other words, our work or our toil is like smudges of dirt in our eyes that prevent us from seeing the full world picture. Well, there's more in this poem. We could go on and keep, keep discussing it, but let's take a step back and look and see what this poem is doing. It's doing a lot of things, but we can identify at least one important thing for our conversation today. It provides us with a vocabulary to describe something that we couldn't describe before. It possesses what we might call the power of an imaginative expression. Who would describe the glory of God as an electrical force or a flame or a shook foil or olive oil? But it's like all of these things. By filling our imagination with poetry and literature, we develop an expressive capacity, a skill that we might not have had before.
And we could give innumerable examples of imaginative expression. But every reader has felt the power of poetry and literature. If at times we don't understand what hope feels like, Emily Dickinson explains in a poem which she writes, Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings a tune without the words and never stops at all. And when I think that I have a vague or hazy feeling of dissatisfaction, the words of Edgar Allan Poe clarify and articulate my otherwise unarticulated and unclarified soul when he writes this in his poem, A Dream Within a Dream. I stand amidst the roar of a surf-tormented shore, and I hold within my hands grains of golden sand, how few yet how they creep through my fingers to the deep. When a person grows in his ability to articulate, he creates a path towards new ways of understanding. Literature and poetry enable us to see reflexively the things that, we pre that were previously present but yet remained unarticulated. Reflexively, we come to see that hope feels a lot like a bird that sings a sweet tune to our heart. We come to understand that despondency feels like the cold, misty clash of dark ocean waves, waves that come again and again, come to take and then leave. Our experience of literature and poetry creates these new words, expressions, and ways of speaking. And as a person acquires these things, he grows in his understanding of not only himself, but the world around him. He develops a deeper awareness of things. Articulation is the key. In what follows, I'd like to give you two examples of imaginative expression. I'd like to illustrate how exposure to literature produces within us a greater ability to see ourselves and others. But before I do that, I want to make the case that poetry and literature does something even more important. Yes, literature and art gives to us the power of imaginative expression so that we can articulate things about ourselves and about our world and our children and the world that they live in, things that we might not have been able to see or understand before. However, literature and poetry also cultivates a moral imagination. Think about the Hopkins poem again. There is a moral force to this poem, specifically in the rhetorical question. It's almost like he's saying this, The world is filled with evidence of the divine life, but why does no one recognize God's authority and power? Hopkins asks you to consider yourself in this poem. Do you fill your life with so much toil and work that you don't have time to contemplate and consider how the tree and the stream and the baby's cry actually echo something about God and his goodness? There's a moral force to this poem because perhaps you don't see the world as charged with the grandeur of God, and you should. The American writer Flannery O'Connor spoke a simple but profound truth when she said this, a story is a way of saying something that can't be said any other way. You tell a story because a statement would be inadequate. There are things about being a fully formed person that mere statements cannot communicate. For example, consider the long formative process of teaching a little boy how to become a great father. We could pile up long piles of descriptions of a good father, and we could even ask the boy to memorize these statements. Or better yet, we can tell him stories about courageous men who take up swords and fight for their family. We can excite him with t tales about men that fail but then get up and continue the adventure of life. We can warn him with narratives that depict bad fathers and the harm that can cause a family. In other words, we give this boy a model to follow and a model to avoid. That's what we do with literature. I learned something about being a good father when I read, uh, read about Reepicheep the leader of all the mice in Arnia. In the voyage of the Dawn Treader, Ripacheep and his, com his companions set out to find the country of Aslan, the king over all other kings. They board the ship called the Dawn Treader, and they overcome some incredible obstacles. But at the end of the book, all of his companions are overcome with grief. They have sailed for so long, and they have not yet found Aslan's country. At this point, Ripacheep speaks up and says this, See if we can get it here for you. My own plans are made, he says. This is the mouse speaking. I wish I had a mouse voice. 
While I can, I sail east in the dawn treader. When she fails me, I paddle east in my coracle. When she sinks, I shall swim east with my forepaws. And when I can swim no longer, if I have not reached Aslan's country or shot over the edge of the world into some vast cataract, I shall sink with my nose to the sunrise. In other words, towards the east. C.S. Lewis depicts this mouse as the bravest, the most noble, the one most in love with finding his king, and the one most willing to sacrifice his own life in pursuit of the king that he loves. Oh, may I be more like this mouse. May I have the same eagerness to sacrifice my life in the pursuit of God. You see, the great fairy tales and fantasy stories capture the meaning of morality through vivid depictions of, of good versus evil, where characters have to make difficult choices between what is right and what is wrong, or heroes and villains contest the very fate of imaginary worlds. The great stories supply the imagination with important symbolic information about the shape of our world and the appropriate responses that all of its inhabitants sh- should, should make. Alistair McIntyre is a contemporary moral philosopher, and he has summed up this point well uh, when he wrote this in his book, After Virtue, which you should all read. It is through hearing stories about wicked stepmothers, lost children, good but misguided kings, wolves that suckle twin boys, youngest sons, sons who receive no inheritance but must take their own, make their own way in a world, and eldest sons who waste their inheritance on riotous living and going to exile to live with the swine, that children learn or mislearn both what a child and what a parent is, what the cast of characters may be in the drama into which they have been born, and what the ways of the world are. Deprive children of stories, he says, and you leave them unscripted, anxious stutterers in their actions as in their words. You see, stories inoculate us to the evils and pains of this world. I've not murdered a man, but I've read about how the guilt of murder can drive a man insane. I've never been uh, tricked into sin by an evil white witch holding a plate of Turkish delight. However, I've experienced the same type of alluring temptation. By experiencing these evils in some small doses, we inoculate ourselves against the darkness of this world. All right, I'd like to conclude our time with two Extended examples uh, of imaginative expression. I'd like to illustrate first how exposure to literature produces within us a greater ability to understand ourselves and the world around us. And then second, how literature shapes our moral selves, how literature teaches us how to love and what to hate. In the first example, we see Dostoevsky. Specifically, we're going to look at crime and punishment. His most intense novel, Dostoevsky, is probably Crime and Punishment. In this story, Dostoevsky tells the story of a young man called, uh, I always mispronounce his name because it's Russian, Raskolnikov. Raskolnikov is a poor law student. He is half starving and lives in destitution. His mother is also destitute because she has given him all of her money so that he can go to school. Raskolnikov's hopes that by studying law, he can raise his family out of poverty by getting a good job. One day, Raskolnikov receives a letter from his sister. He learns that his sister has agreed to marry a rich man in order to save their family from starvation and ruin. Raskolnikov is angry. You see, he is smart, and so he can read between the lines in this letter. He knows that this rich man is abusive and that this is going to be a loveless marriage And he believes that his sister is basically planning to prostitute herself to this man so that she can save her family. He becomes almost delusional with angry and with her and with himself. After all, it seems like this was his job to save his family. Meanwhile, while all this is going on, Raskolnikov lives near a wicked pawnbroker, a totally godless woman. And he sees how this wicked pawnbroker extorts the poor people in his community. She has no family, and she basically abuses everyone around her. She makes the world objectively worse. Then Raskolnikov justifies something terrible to himself. 
He reasons that this pawnbroker is basically a force for evil in this world and that no one would miss her if she was murdered. In fact, all the people that she swindled could get their stuff back. He imagines all the good that he could do with the money if he took it from her and from her and from what she was doing. He could pay for his law school. He could finally feed his mother. He could save his sister from this abusive marriage. So Raskolnikov plans to kill the pawnbroker, and he does it. And man, this is a great story. The author really makes you feel like Raskolnikov isn't at all different from you. If you were in, the, in his shoes, you might have done the same thing. And don't say you wouldn't. The author's point is that inside every person is the incredible capacity for the most gruesome of acts. What Raskolnikov learns, however, is that this terrible act of murder changed his life forever. He is haunted by guilt and paranoia and struggles to justify his actions, even as he's pursued relentlessly by a detective. The novel explores themes of morality, justice, redemption, and the human psyche as it's placed under extreme pressure. In one particular scene, Raskolnikov comes to the realization that his actions have destroyed the possibility of him ever having an honest relationship again. This is what the author says. Hush, mother, Raskolnikov muttered in confusion, not looking at her, but pressing her hand. We shall have time to speak freely of everything. As he said this, he was suddenly overwhelmed with confusion and turned pale. Again, that awful sensation he had known of late passed with a deadly chill over his soul. Again, it became suddenly plain and perceptible to him that he had just told a fearful lie that he would never now be able to speak freely of everything, that he would never again be able to speak of anything to anyone. The anguish of this moment was such that for a moment he almost forgot himself. He got up from his seat, not looking at anyone, walks towards the door. I'm haunted by this line. It became suddenly plain and perceptible to him that he had just told a fearful lie, that he would never now be able to speak freely to everyone, freely of everything, that he would never again be able to speak of anything to anyone. He can't tell his mother what he did. That would kill her. And she's already sickly because of her lack of material prosperity. And because he can't tell her, he realizes that he can't tell anyone. He'll always live with a secret, crushed by the weight of it, because if he were honest with anyone, with just one person, even for a moment, his whole life would be ruined. The author does a masterful job of depicting the isolation caused by a gruesome sin. And more than that, he shows how Raskolnikov is driven crazy by the secret of this murder. He ultimately loses his mind and longs to be released from the pain of carrying this secret. Finally, at the end of the story, Raskolnikov finds redemption from his guilt by confessing his sin openly to the detective and then going to prison, which after nearly going crazy, Raskolnikov was happy to do. Now, we're all Christians here, and we know that every person has a sin nature, that they are capable of depravity. We know that sin has consequences, but what are those consequences, and what do they feel like? Hopefully, it's hard for us to answer that question. In the life of Raskolnikov, we come to find out a little bit of what that is like. We see a cautionary tale about the effects of sin, the great weight of guilt, the corrosive effects of our actions and, and what, what the, the, those actions play out in the lives of other people. You may not be contemplating murder right now, and that's good. But we're tempted to believe that similar, smaller sins won't have an effect on you. And when you read about the life of Raskolnikov, you find out that it's, that's actually not a good opinion. That sin isolates you and has the potential to destroy everything in your life. Well, that's the first picture. It's a dark one. But it's important to consider uh, as Christians. And that's one of the, the roles that literature can play. It really does inoculate you to, to thinking, even for a moment, that sin is something that can be covered up, that it's a secret that can be held without consequence. There's another picture and it's taken from the classic poem, The Iliad. The Iliad is an epic poem written by the ancient Greek poet Homer. It tells the story of the Trojan War, a 10-year conflict between the Greeks and the Trojans. 
At the center of this story is a comparison between a Greek warrior and a Trojan prince. The Greek warrior is named Achilles, and he was the greatest warrior among all the Greeks. The, Tro the Trojan prince is named Hector, a brave and honorable prince and master of war. The story follows many battles and conflicts between these two sides as they fight for the fate of Troy and all the people that live there. Along the way, the poem explores themes of honor, pride, vengeance, and the price of war. In one scene, Hector returns home from a skirmish with the Greeks to make plans for battle. But before returning to battle, he visits his wife and baby boy. As we'll read in a second, Hector was still wearing his armor, which would be, a fright, which would be frightening to a little baby. But then Hector pauses and says a prayer over his son. And this is how Homer depicts this scene. Shining Hector reached down for his son, but the boy recoiled, cringing against his nurse, screaming out at the sight of his own father, terrified by the flashing bronze, the horsehair crest, the great ridge of his helmet nodding, bristling terror, so it struck his eyes. And his loving father laughed, his mother laughed as well, and glorious Hector quickly lifting up the helmet from his head, setting it down on the ground, fiery in the sunlight, and raising his son, he kissed him, tossing, tossed him in his arms, lifting a prayer to Zeus and the other deathless gods. Zeus, all you immortals, grant that this boy, my son, may be like me. First in glory among the Trojans, strong and brave like me, and rule all Troy in power. And then one day, let them say, he is a far better man than his father. When he comes home from battle, bearing the bloody gear of his mortal enemies, he has killed in war a joy to his mother's heart. By all definitions, Hector is a true man. He's the strongest warrior, the first in glory among the Trojans. He has, uh, he's, has skill as a commander, and he foils the Greek army at, at every turn. Any man would be fearful if they saw the mighty Hector standing radiant in his armor, which glistens like fire in the sunlight. So fearful is this portrait of a warrior that the baby boy screams in horror when he sees his father. Then unexpectedly, something we wouldn't expect in today's portrait of a, of a strong, warlike man, the great warrior stoops to comfort his son. Hector kisses the baby tenderly. And then he prays for his son. But notice what he says. He first asks that his son would be great and noble and virtuous like his father, the mighty Hector. He says this, Grant this boy my son may be like me, first in glory among the Trojans, strong and brave like me, and rule all of Troy in power. And then he goes one step further. He says, I want my son to be like me, and then I want him to be better than me says this, and then one day let them say, let the Trojans say, he is a far better man than his father. Homer depicts this incredibly tender moment between a father and a son. A picture of a strong man fighting a world of trouble to save his family, but also the picture of a tender father who wants his child to grow up into a much better man than ever he has become. Our culture has many pictures of what manhood looks like, but none of them captures the nobility of Hector, a man that is perfectly brave, strong, capable, tender, affectionate, and so intent on fulfilling his obligation as a prince of Troy and a father. I'm challenged by this portrait of Hector. I want my little girl to be like me one day. I want to try to model for her some of the honor and nobility that described the great Hector. But I'm not a perfect model, so I want her to be far, a far better mother than I was as a father. And I find myself praying the same prayer that Hector prayed. There's a moral force to this poem. I feel myself called to be the kind of father that can say this prayer. And this is the power that literature and poetry has. It calls us to put, or, or in, in this particular poem, I feel called to put on my own armor and fight my own enemies. It calls all of us to model honor and virtue for our children, and then pray that they'll be far greater models of those virtues than we were. 
We could probably look at a hundred more examples, but I'll save those for another time. My goal simply was to show you briefly that literature has the power of imaginative expression, that it can teach you to see and articulate things about yourself and about the world we live in that you might not have seen before. I also hope to, to show you a bit of how literature and poetry has a moral force. Great stories give us opportunity to admire great men and women and be warned about murderous Russians. Thank you for being here tonight. Thank you. Yeah, why don't you pull that off to the side? You can okay. set up on a chair here. As we you know, get into this Q&A, I'll start with a confession that will lead into my question. My confession is that I do indeed have a Pinterest account. <laughs> okay. And the, you know, the confession sets up this question. One day on Pinterest, I saw this couple's t-shirt, like one for the guy and one for the girl. Yeah. On, the, on the girl's t-shirt, there was a picture of a book with a quote that said, I've lived a thousand lives. And on the guy's t-shirt, there was a picture of a video game controller with a quote that said, I've died a thousand deaths. Okay, so this sets up my question for you. <laughs> and I'm buying you time to come up with good questions for Mitchell. Are there some storytelling, media, storytelling mediums that are more effective at virtue formation than others? So for example, do movies, songs, comic books, fantasy literature, allegories, video games, and Amish romance novels equally contribute to shaping the moral imagination? Or better, do they shape the imagination in equally beneficial ways? Um, I'm intrigued by the Amish romance novel. Um, I've not read one. I haven't read one in a while, but <laughs> since Kate is in the nursery, if you want to make fun of her, uh, her <laughs> she and all of her sisters had a neighbor who did uh, book covers for Amish romance novels. So he would get them to pose and then like make pictures based on them. So whenever we go into a used bookstore, we go to the trashy Amish romance novel section and look for her and her sisters in them. So That's yeah. pretty funny. Wow. What a story. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, I think we'd be foolish to say that those things aren't formative. I mean, a good, you know, there's something that can be, we can be warned by about, uh, you know, the portrayal of a character in a particular movie. I think books, though, and poetry in particular, um, because of how um, uh, wordish they are, um, are going to typically invite you into filling in the gaps. Um, and so I, I do think that they play a more, they're a more immersive experience. Whereas a lot of people, I think when we watch movies, there's a difference between active receptivity and passive receptivity. And I think movies are a more passive experience and reading is a more active experience. And so I think an active experience with a medium like reading or, or you know, reading literature or poetry, are, it, it's, going, it's going to be more formative. Now, if you just watch trashy movies all day, that'll be pretty formative. Um, but but I, I, I do think that they are sort of, they are effective in different ways. Um, and so it's probably good to like watch good movies on occasion, but then also read good books. Uh, but at the end of the day, I would put books, uh, wordish things. At, at, the, at the top. Okay. Um, just because it, it, it requires an activity. You know, you yeah. can't just passively sit so back. So you're saying binging 15 episodes of a Netflix show is probably like turning off the like positive moral formation aspect of your life? Oh, I think you'll be formed if you do that um, into a certain type of but person. But negatively, yeah. Um, but I wonder if that's the person we want, we want to be. Now, um, that's not to say that you can't watch Netflix. That's just to say that it, we just have to be careful of the forces that in our lives that shape our, our imagination. Um, and I think reading good, good books and good literature is probably the best way uh, to go about it. Great. That's helpful. All right. Does anyone have questions for Mitch um, about literature, the imagination, moral formation, no. um, is, or anything he talked about? Mel? Not too much. <laughs> I mean, I think a lot of people re listen to a lot of great audiobooks, and it's sometimes like in the busyness of life, maybe that's all you can get to. I mean, if you're like a mom, you got like 12 kids, you know, or just one kid. Good, good Lord. Uh, they can just be a lot of work. So, you know, maybe like all you really have time for is, you know, listening to one great novel. Um, so, I, yeah, I think that's a great way to sort of supplement, um, you know. And I, I do think that there is a good benefit 
uh, both for you and for your own heart, uh, to try to set time aside to read the book. Um, instead of, because there's all kinds of interpretive decisions being made by the reader to read something in a certain way. Surely you were, when you were reading along at some of the quotes, you're like, wow, he read that in a different way. I would have read that differently and emphasized a different part of the sentence. And you're like, well, he's really weird. I wonder why he did that. And that's because I was making an interpretive decision on how I read it, right? And so that's going to, even as I was reading, I was trying to get you to feel a little bit of what I was feeling. Um, and so asking, you would have to come up with that interpretive choice <laughs> as, as a reader. And I think that, again, that's that sort of actively, you're actively being more, it's, it requires a more active participant um, than um, listening you know, audio, into an audio book. But that's not to say that, you know, just fill your life with good literature, you know, and if that means that what you have time for is to listen to an audio book, then great. That, that's wonderful. Yeah, Richard. Yeah, let me, let me answer the first part of that question because, um, uh, so what I hear in this question is maybe the implicit question of what is a classic? Like what makes a book a classic versus like an Amish novel, an Amish romance novel? Um, and, uh, you know, at the end of the day, books are classics because they, uh, they are true to the human experience. They are true portrayal of humanity that's true for humans throughout time. And so books that are, that are sort of central to the Western canon of literature, um, like a Tolstoy or like um, the Iliad and the Odyssey, those things have remained central uh, to the Western canon or to like the great ideas or the great Western tradition uh, precisely because they speak so accurately and timelessly to a universal human experience. And so there are some books that are going to do that really, really well, and there's some books that maybe echo that, uh, but yet they're not great examples. Like, and, I, and I've never read an Amish romance novel, but I imagine that those type of books would be books that uh, only have meaning because they relate in some way, but they, but they are probably not the best example. Otherwise, they, they would have emerged as classics, right? I mean, part of this is there's a certain common sense to human experience. Uh, classically, that we talked about that as, that as sort of a, a, a sense that is shared by all humans. And because there is a sense that's shared by all humans a little, uh, that, that educates us on sort of what is... What, is, what does it mean to be good? What does it mean to, to, to be a good dad? What does it, you know, um, mean certain things just cross-culturally? Um, there's a certain level of, of validity that we can give books that have just stood the test of time that people everywhere in all different kinds of cultures and languages have sort of elevated. Um, and that gets to, I think, the, there's this canon of literature in the classical tradition that is incredibly important to read. Now, that doesn't mean that you only can read books there, like you can only read like Dostoevsky, for example, um, because there are many authors that, you know, are Russian or, or, or American or, or whatever that are writing books that, given the passage, not enough time has passed, right, for us to know if they would be classical or not, if they would sort of emerge as sort of timeless. Um, but I think starting with the books that everyone sort of recognizes, hey, these are classic pieces of literature. And the five, now I have to give you the five. Um, I think, well, the first two I have to say, you know, is the Iliad and um, the Aeneid, um, um, Virgil's Aeneid. Those are, that, that's the Bible of the ancient world. If you had asked um, someone in the first century uh, about the letters of Paul, they'd say, who? But if you asked them, do you know who Virgil is? They'd say, yeah, he wrote the Aeneid. Um, and so they were, they, they formed most of uh, the ancient world in terms of their own self-understanding. So the Iliad and the Odyssey, the Iliad, um, and the Aeneid are two, um, books sort of must be on there. Um, you know, I would also say, um, um, Anna Karenina, uh, Leo Tolstoy, um, it's the portrayal of three marriages and it's, uh, it's a little bit, it's a difficult novel to read, I admit. You know, maybe don't start there, um, you know, but you can get a good translation of the Iliad, and that'd be a great place to start. Um, but what I love about Tolstoy is, it, in, in my opinion, it's the, it's the highest and most complex Christian novel. And it really gets at the heart of uh, what is a Christian marriage and what should it look like by portraying how two marriages fall apart and one is like struggles, but like that kind of comes through in the end. Um, so that, that, that brings me up to three. Um, I would probably want to put Crime and Punishment in there. Um, 
but you can come up with your own list. Um, and uh, then I think maybe some lighter things, besides those are all sort of maybe a little intense, but I think some lighter things like um, The Hobbit, I, I, I think is very important, um, just given the whole trajectory of Tolkien uh, and what he was doing with those characters. And actually a lot of those characters echo a lot of classical characters and classical history. Um, and that gives me one more. And this was a tough question because there's a lot that could have made this list that I feel embarrassed haven't. Um, <sighs> Can I interrupt you, do you and ask do a five? you like pushback E kind of questions sure. on this? Sure, yeah. Okay, one question is, um, if these guys were so popular during yeah. the time of the Bible's writings, how come they didn't incorporate them? And why does it seem that the biblical story sometimes intentionally subverts those stories? You know, that, that's one question. Maybe start there. Uh, so the oldest piece of writing we have is the Iliad and the Odyssey. And um, the Iliad and the Odyssey formed most of Greek identity. If you ask a Greek, like, who are you? They would say, we are the people who beat the Trojans. Mm -hmm. The Trojans were awesome, and we were better. And we are the centerpiece of culture. Even a lot of the Greek philosophers used the Iliad and the Odyssey as like a philosophical text. And they, in a lot of their philosophical teachings sort of bubbled up from that body of literature. So it is impossible. Anyone who, any, any culture that was influenced by Greek culture was influenced by the Iliad and the Odyssey. And during the reign of Alexander the Great, he took Greek culture and he sp took uh, and he spread that culture throughout the entire known world. He conquered most of the known world. And so with Greek culture, there's this famous picture that depicts Alexander the Great with a sword, but with a, um, um, the, the, the works of Homer in a, like a little uh, case, right? Um, and, and it was, uh, Alexander the Great was famously taught by Aristotle, and Aristotle gave him a philosophical textbook and the Iliad and the Odyssey. And supposedly, the story goes that uh, Alexander the Great took that with him everywhere. That's probably not true. But what is true is that when Greek culture spread, Greek ideas in the Iliad and the Odyssey spread as well. So Christianity is emerging in a culture where everyone is going to be familiar with those Greek stories. Mm -hmm. They speak, as a matter of fact, the, the Old Testament for a certain period of it was rewritten in Greek. That's how influential Greek culture was. Uh, the Jews you know, who lived it all, in the ancient world at the time translated their own scriptures into the Greek language. And there's actually echoes in the Greek translation of the Old Testament of uh, classical Greek culture. And so there are times when the New Testament authors, though, who are coming much later, like 400 years later after Alexander the Great, where they are trying to push back against the Hellenization or the Greek culture influence on certain things. And so the Jewish authors are, are trying to say, hey, there is a, there, Yahweh is God, and there are things about Yahweh that do not align with like the Greek conception of God. Um, and so they read that literature, they were shaped by it, 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 it influenced the very arguments that they made, but they also recognized that it was important to critique what they were reading. They were, they were good readers of texts. Yeah, and I suppose that's what I'm getting at, because even your illustration of Alexander the Great, who establishes a kingdom, like he's the embodiment of Homer's literature. Right. It seems like Jesus's message that you preached to us just yesterday, <laughs> like turns that on its head. So how do Christians relate to even these classic works of literature yeah. that we would say are virtue-forming, helpful, right, they help us be better Christians, yep. while knowing that at the same time, the biblical authors, and especially Jesus, seem to uh, communicate values through their storytelling, parables or yep. otherwise, that yep. subvert that story. Uh, well, or, or maybe I'm, like, totally off, but it seems like that would be problematic. Yeah. To, you know. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think at the end of the day, like, the reason why things become classics is because they don't answer questions clearly. Like the portrayal of Achilles, for example, in the Iliad, the, in the Iliad, Achilles is portrayed as this angry, vengeful person. And we look at that and we say, you know, probably shouldn't want to, probably don't want to be that, right? But yet in the Greek world, little boys are running around pretending to be Achilles, right? And, but it's helpful to, to understand that there is a right place for a, a, a powerful exertion of power 
in the life of a man. It's good when it comes time for men to stand up against evil in their lives or in society. It's important that like Achilles, they are vengeful and they, they beat back all of those things, right? But it's also not good for like vengeful wrath to be like the defining feature of your life. So there's, there's always a dialectic that's happening between you and what you know of Scripture and what these texts are saying about what it means to be human. And that's where, yeah, we enter into every book with a dialogue. It, it, it should be shaping you and you should be shaping it. Um, and the books that do that best are the, are the classics, the pagan literature, uh, okay. as well. Yeah, great. Okay, I don't want to keep taking up time. I think it'd be interesting to keep chasing that. Maybe yeah. maybe we'll do a podcast episode. Because sure. I, I do have a lot of questions. I know classical school is a good thing, but I wonder sometimes why we're elevating one slice of human history to be the paradigm for shaping minds. I don't want you to answer that. <sighs> I just want us to think about that because others might have questions. Yeah. <laughs> uh, as, what, a, like, as a classical school, you're you you know you're not on the clock, but you probably can't say anything contra classical school given your employment. Well, I, yeah, and I wouldn't want to. I uh, uh, could you reframe the question just so that yeah, I, I why answer? you know whenever I why talk elevate to that my, one? my friends in classical education, they're like this is the golden age of virtue and knowledge, and who cares what the rest of society across the globe has done over the thousands of years. Let's pick that slice of history and now shape education in light of that. So part of my job is to spend like uh, many hours answering this question. So I th but I think like I would just sort of point to what has had the biggest influence on the Christian West? Hands down, it was Greco-Roman culture. So Rome, Athens, and Jerusalem, those three cities and the culture that emerged from that and the literature that emerged from that and the religion that emerged from that those and the politics that emerge from that are, are the founding fathers in the Federalist Papers quote Plutarch, a Roman philosopher, more than they and Cicero more than they quote anyone else, and everything from our like how our government is made is is built right to uh, the um, the auth the authors in our Western world, uh, those things only have make sense when you understand the text that they were reading, and. That is the classical literature. That was, you know, the Ciceros in Rome, the Plutarchs in Rome, Alexander, the stories of Alexander the Great and, and how he conquered the world, reading the Iliad and the Odyssey. I mean, those things make sense of our experience of the world. And so knowing that means that you know our Western world, like you know why like Minneapolis does certain things, because you understand the very foundation of how our civilization was built. Sure. That's my yeah, elevator if, pitch. If you're interested <laughs> in that more, a mutual friend of ours named Shane Saxon hosts Memoria Press's podcast, and they address these issues yeah. semi-regularly because they're in the business of classical school, so they've got to answer these questions. Yeah. But any other questions for Mitchell? Yeah, Mel. Not totally. It, maybe, maybe. Yeah, maybe I can translate. If I'm right, Mel, tell me. If not, tell me. Um, when do we look at biblical stories? Yeah. And whether it's in a children's book or a song, when do we, you know, use a sanctified imagination to add a bunch of details to the stories oh. and reflect that in our stories and songs? Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Oh, okay. I think I, I think I understand. Yeah. So, like, at. you know, in the yeah. way that um, you can take the Jesus Storybook Bible, for example, yeah. and there's a lot of added dialogue, or the Chosen. Wait, is I got a, movie. a I got a I got a great example. Okay. So before I came here on Thursday. I left on, I left on Friday night. I went and I saw um, Jesus Christ Superstar. I don't think you wanted to admit that in front of people. I did, uh, <laughs> um, and um, blasphemous uh, in a lot of ways. And it's important. And a lot of details are filled in. It's it's definitely a um, a uh, uh, a interpretive reading of the life of Christ, uh, an interpretation that I wouldn't agree with. But what I found helpful about it, and I would never like recommend that like Christians go and like get their theology from that. But what I found helpful about it was this is the portrayal of someone chose to portray the life of Christ in this way because they're trying to m make a point about Jesus like not actually being divine, that he kind of just was like a pop star who got a lot of following, things got got out of hand, and he got crucified. Right? That that's an interesting that's an interesting if not very wrong. Um, 
perspective, retelling of the life of Christ. And what was in, and again, what was interesting about it was to see the life of Christ through the lens of someone who's not a Christian. Um, so there can be some value to to that, but what should that like make up like the bulk of what you know? you're learning about? You know, probably not. Like take the, or, um, you know, another good example might be, well, the Gospels. We have four portrayals of the life of Christ, and each of the Gospels portray Christ in slightly different ways. It's going to be really helpful for you, instead of asking, like, hey, like, let's, let's ourselves, like, write out and fill in creatively. Like, I'm okay with the chosen, I suppose. And, and, and there, again, you can ask an interesting question about how is the author trying to portray the life of Christ? You know, is he accurate? Are there things that I would change? Like, maybe it can help you think about that. But I think there might be something really helpful about reading Matthew and trying to ask, well, if Matthew was going to make the chosen, you know, if he was going to write a gospel, um, what things would he elevate? Well, it seems to me that in the first five chapters of Matthew, he basically has Jesus rewalking the path of, uh, uh, of Abraham and Moses to portray Jesus as a new type of Abraham, a new type of Moses. And so there's these, those themes are, are very pertinent for Matthew, and he's trying to, he's trying to interpret the life of, of Jesus by filling in some of the gaps. And that is a, that's the, we, normally, we normally do that, like just by our living, our life is sort of an interpretive experience of data, sense data, Right? But, and I have no problem with the chosen necessarily, but if that becomes our main lens through which to see Jesus, and we don't allow the text of Scripture through the Holy Spirit to shape our, our, our perception of things, then I think maybe that could, that could be. But it, everything has a place, right? There's a place for laughing. There's a place for watching the chosen. There's a place for not watching the chosen. Um, there's a place for a carefully study of Matthew and study of Luke. How, how is he portraying Jesus? Um, Rachel? Yeah, it's like a, in addition to, not like either or. It's not like either read your Bible or read, you know, or watch The Chosen. Sorry? Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah you know, because, see, again, seeing someone else interpret the life of Christ in a certain way might ask, bring you to ask, like, an interesting question. Like, oh, like, he chose to portray James like this. Or if I remember correctly, like, isn't one of the disciples kind of like eccentric? Matthew. Matthew. I've never seen The Chosen. But, like, one of the disciples, I think, is like a little eccentric. You're like, wow, why did, why did he portray Matthew that way? And then maybe that, maybe that helps you, you know, ask better questions of the text when you're reading Matthew. Um, but, yeah, probably, like, best to, like, th- th- like, with the help of the Holy Spirit and, like, reading in community, like, go to Scripture and sort of say, what perspective does Matthew have on the life of Jesus um, not whoever the director is of, of, of yeah. the chosen. Yeah, I mean, you hear us in sermons all the time and historical narratives say that there there is no bare history. There's a theological message that's being communicated through their historical narrative. My concern about chosen yeah. is that most of us don't know the four gospels very well, and we never got permission to write a fifth gospel and present Jesus mm-hmm. the way we want Jesus presented. So for people who are going to watch Chosen, I want them to know the Gospels really well because it's going to change the way they read their Bible. They're going to pay attention to some details only because of the way Jesus and the disciples are presented in Chosen. So I've never watched it because I want to study the Gospels more before I do. But I'm happy that there are people at our church who every Friday night watch it. You know, So I think we just have to be careful with some of that and be cognizant of when we're believing something about Jesus based on an unauthorized fifth gospel than based on the four portrayals of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So that, It'd be that, really cool to like watch the chosen and like read Matthew and like kind of put them together. Like how is Matthew portraying Jesus and how is the chosen? Yeah. I mean, that, that might be a fascinating. We only have three minutes left. <laughs> I, I have a few questions I want to go in speed round. Okay. And this is, I know this will be hard, Mitch, because you're an educator and you talk a lot. It's hard for me to you. Here's, here's one. Uh, many works of literature include objectionable elements ranging from murder to swearing to sexual immorality. Aside from the general considerations of age and maturity, how have you thought about objectionable elements in the literature that's intended to form our moral imaginations? Yeah, I think there's a difference between literature that presents 
like sin as in all the effect, like crime and punishment, a man's life is destroyed by what he did. There's a difference between that and like the, the book, um, like the Twilight series, um, which I did read, um, because it lifts up themes and glorifies themes that are like dumb. And, and, and not good. So, so you would say it's not just the presence of the objectionable element that's a problem, but what is done with that element. Yeah, Whether it's right. glorified and set up as something to... Yes, because again, literature inoculates you to the sin of the world, yeah. right? And, and so receiving... It in, in literature, in the eyes of someone else, in the life of someone else, seeing glimpses of sin actually can have inoculating effects. What advice do you have for people who don't necessarily enjoy reading... Yeah. and who maybe even have shorter attention spans yeah. and will never pick up a Russian novel. Yeah. What advice do you have for them? Uh, there's a lot of great authors out Other there. Other than to go pick up a Russian novel. Right. You know, don't yeah. give that piece. Yeah, there's a lot of great authors out there, you know, that... Um, actually, let's start with Flannery O'Connor because Flannery O'Connor is a wonderful author. She wrote a lot of short stories, very approachable. Um, Anton Chekhov is another short story writer. He's a Russian, so you have to forgive me. But his short stories are, are fascinating. Uh, so start with some short stories and then get into like a more, uh, an author that's maybe a little more recent, like maybe Walker Percy. He has a few interesting novels that would be interesting to read. They tend to be a little bit shorter. Um, Graham Greene um, is a modern author that, um, um, that has written some fascinating novels. I definitely recommend. But yeah, let's start with Flannery O'Connor. All right, I would echo that. I think Flannery O'Connor, her short stories are great. If you would like to borrow the complete collection of her short stories, it's just upstairs. She has this one good one about a, um, a Bible salesman. Yeah. It's really good. Yep. Uh, good Country People is what it's called. Yeah. You should look it up. There, there are some good ones. And if you, if you are, I mean, if you'd be interested in getting a small group of people to do that, I'd be happy to, like, sit down with the group and give some advice for the or order to read her short stories because you shouldn't read them in chronological order, Bold in take. my yeah. opinion. Um, but I think they're very, very helpful. Yeah. All right, we, we need to end. Yeah. Mitchell is going to hang around for all of your literature and imagination questions. Yeah. Uh, but, Mitchell, thank you for driving through 90-mile-per-hour winds golf ball sized hail, <laughs> delayed and canceled flights and all the rest to be here with us as we keep trying to figure out how to do Bible conferences. Yeah. So it's why don't I pray for you and for us and then we'll dismiss. Yeah. Father, thank you for Mitchell. Thank you that uh, you're working in his life and um, that you're using him to shape others through his role at Memoria Press and through his role as a husband and father and church member. Pray that you would continue to work in and through him. I pray that these ideas that Mitch has presented over this weekend would be helpful for us. Would you allow us to keep thinking about the way that stories, that the big story of the Bible, along with all the little stories in it, are intended to uh, reveal yourself to us and shape us into the image of your Son. You be with us as we go now. In Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Thank you.